What a privilege to be here and share with you. We've had a con- creation conference. I hope many of you have come uh, to hear these scientists that are researching these issues on a daily basis. And I'm not going to speak exactly on creation today. Instead, I'm going to speak on set of Genesis 1 on Genesis 2. And it's like, oh... But see, God made all of these things. He created all this world, this universe. He created the animals and everything. And then he came down and made man. And my question is, why did he do that? Why are we here? What, God, what reason did you have for doing all this? And I think that really begins to be answered in Genesis 2 and is finished in Revelation. We're going to look at a big picture today because we're going to start in Genesis 2 and look all the way ahead to Revelation to see, God, what is your plan for this creation, what you did here? And so as we look at this message, it's God designed marriage. Now, I, first of all, I recognize not all of you are married. Some of you wish you were married and are not. Some of you don't want to be ever married. And so is this message just for people who are married? No, this is for everyone because God's plan is not only for marriage now, but his plan through eternity is marriage. What is this going on? What? This is for everyone. And marriage here on earth is just a picture of marriage in heaven when Christ has his bride. Oh, so it's, a, it's an interesting thing. It's like, why did you do this? And we're going to look today at God's word and see if we can discover some of the reasons why God designed marriage, why it was the very first thing on his mind after creation. So to do that, we're going to look at God's Word, and we're going to look at several passages of Scripture. To do that, I've put the passages in your notes and up here so you can turn to them with your Bible, or you can look on with me or look on in your notes. And on the screen here, you'll be seeing the notes from the English Standard Version. There's two reasons for that. One, it's a good version, but second is their copyright laws allow me to do this without getting special permission. So it's a good version, and so that's what I'm going to be reading from. But the first part we're going to read from is from Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis 1, Moses is citing what God said. Uh, Moses says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth in the day they were created. This is God's account of creation. This is his creation account. This is what he had to say about what he did. So we're going to read from that first. And we're just going to read two verses there uh, about the creation of man. So in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, here's what God said. Then God said, let us make man... In our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything creeping that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. And we could go on and read some more about that, but we're going to jump over a little bit because we have a second account of this, and this is in Genesis chapter 2. And as Moses cites in Genesis, who is the author of this? In Genesis 5, 1, he says, this is the book of the account of Adam. So we have another perspective on these same issues. This is Adam's record of these events, and Genesis 2 is an account of marriage. 
So we're going to read verse 7, and then we'll jump down and read verses 18 through 25, specifically the verses about marriage. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Jumping down. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So... The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, we read that and it's like, okay, interesting things, fascinating things, but you know what? Always when we read things, if we start asking some questions of the text, we will learn more. So that's what I want to do today. I just want to start asking some questions here. What does this mean? What, did, what happened here? And as we ask those questions and look at the text for the answers, we're going to just learn some things that, oh, I didn't see that just reading through that the first time. <clears throat> so the first question is actually a question that atheists ask. And actually, they don't ask the question. They say this is the truth. But they, if they asked it, they would begin to learn, oh, oh, Now I see what's going on here. But they don't really ask it. They really just say it. And here's what they say. Doesn't this section prove the Bible is wrong? It gives two different orders of creation. By the way, this is atheists love to look at the first couple chapters of Genesis and say, oh, this couldn't have happened, this couldn't have happened. This is probably their favorite one. They say, Genesis proves itself that it is wrong. So why should we believe it? And here's what they say. uh, Which came first? The beasts or man? Well, did you, well, it's not literally fair because I didn't read all of Genesis 1, which talks about the creation of the beasts. But if we'd read all of 1 and 1 and 2, we'd have seen this. In Genesis 1, 20 through 27, if we just kind of summarize that, let the, God says, let the waters abound. Okay, he's making the fish and the sea creatures. And then let birds fly. And then he makes the birds And then God made the beasts of the earth after his kind. And then finally God says, let us make man in our image. And so there is the sequence of what God did. Okay? But then we get to Genesis 2. Oh, and the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. So the man is there. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. There you have it. 
We don't know which one's correct, which is, is the first sequence correct or the second? But whichever way, whichever sequence correct, the other one is wrong, therefore the Bible is wrong, therefore we should not trust the Bible and throw it out. No one's saying anything. <laughs> no! <laughs> when you see something like this, it's like, oh, take a look, what is God saying here? This is not a contradiction. Okay, it looks like it, but if you look closely, here's what's happening. In Genesis 2, first of all, that's in the... Okay, go back. Genesis 1 is a sequential account of creation. So which is the correct account here? Which is the sequential account? Genesis 1, that's the top line. That is the sequence. What is happening in Genesis 2? Is Genesis 2 a sequential account of creation? No. What is Genesis 2? It's an account of marriage. It's a topical account of marriage. And here's what's happening. Genesis 2, now out of the ground, the Lord God, and ESV fixes it for us, had formed. And by the way, in the Hebrew, the word the verb for formed and had formed are the same word. It just, you have to translate it differently depending on the context. So it's he had formed every beast of the field. But the key here that God is pointing out is that these creatures were made out of the ground. And, oh, by the way, Adam, what were you made out of? What was Adam made out of? The ground. And God had just said, it's not good for the man to be alone. So he needs a helper. So Adam, you need a helper. You were made out of the ground. I've made these creatures out of the ground. Let's go take a look and see if we can find a helper for you. Really, that is what they're doing. We'll look. We'll look at Scripture. That is what they're doing. Adam, you're made out of the ground. Let's look around and see if we can find another creature made out of the ground that would be a helper for you. So here they go. And they look around and say, oh, let's call that a giraffe. And would that be a good helper for you? Oh, much too long of a neck. Okay, how about this one? Let's call this a, an elephant. And would that be a good helper for you? Oh, look at those ears. Look at that nose. No. Oh, how about this one? Nice smile. I like this smile. We'll call this a, a goat. But would that be a good helper? Oh, floppy ears. Look at those nubby horns on the top. Oh, let's call this one a wolf. But you know how sharp his teeth is? It would never be a helper. This is some kind of a monkey. Nice eyes. Nice eyes. But I just, that hairy face, it's just, I don't think it could be a helper. How about this one? Well, let's call it an ostrich. But it has a bird brain. Now, realistically, is that what they were doing? Look at the next verse. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Was that a surprise to God? No. Why was it a surprise? But was God teaching Adam something there? Oh, yes. Yes, Adam, you're made out of the ground. These are made out of the ground. But why is it that these creatures are not a fit helper for you? They're made out of the ground just like you. What's the difference? That's the point God is getting across. So let me ask that as a question. So here's our second question. Was Adam made, in other words, formed out of existing material like you would make a cake, take the flour and the sugar. Was he made or was he created? When God created, there was nothing and all of a sudden, poof, there was something. And these are two different Hebrew verbs, made, asa, created, bara. So was Adam made or created? Now you have to think clearly because I'm, some of these questions are a little tricky questions. 
And the answer to that is, oh, that was really sincere. You all got that together. Uh, The answer is, well, let's look at the Scripture. Then God said, let us make, form out of existing material, man in our image after our likeness. So God created man. Oh, now now you're really confused. Did he make or create? Well, uh, uh, yes. God created man in his own image. And by the way, and we don't have time to look at this, but, well, was God... Did God make or create? The answer is yes, both. Man's body was made out of the dirt. Woman's body made out of man's rib. And yet what happened then? Oh, God breathed into him. Oh, that's something else. But if you look at this, it's like, oh, the made part of us, our body, is that in the image of God? Uh, That's what it says. And the created part of us, is that in the image of God? And the male-female part of us, is that made or created? Oh, there's lots of questions. We don't have time to even look at here, but let's keep looking at marriage. So here's Genesis 2.7. I think this explains it better. Man is both made and created. Because you first, man is formed from the dust of the ground. That's made out of existing material. Our body is made out of dirt, chemicals. But then look what else happens. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's a creation. You can't make the breath of God out of chemicals. I don't care what chemicals you get, how you put them together, how organized. You can't make the breath of God out of chemicals. We are made and created. That's what God's Word says. We are are dirt, but we're not just dirt. You can't make the breath of God out of dirt. So this question now we should know the answer to. Are humans just chemicals? We are chemicals, but are we just chemicals? No. As God says clearly, we have God's breath in us. That's not chemicals. But by the way, what does evolution think? Predominant evolutionary viewpoint is that humans are complex, organized chemicals. Nothing more. Can you evolve a soul or a spirit that's not chemicals? Evolution only works on chemicals. You can't evolve the breath of God. Ooh, that kind of throws a kink in evolution. And by the way, do evolutionists believe that humans are something more than chemicals? Well, let's look. Richard Dawkins, one of the a, a key atheists who is a biologist, and here's what he says. He says... A dualist acknowledges a fundamental distinction between mind and matter. Now, I wish he'd said it a little better. He says a little on spirit or soul and matter. It's not just your brain. Brain is matter. But your mind or your soul or your spirit and matter. There is a a distinction. A dualist discovers that. But then he says, a monist, by contrast, believes that mind is a manifestation of matter. Everything you are is just chemicals. A dualist believes in mind as some kind of disembodied spirit or soul that inhabits the body and therefore could conceivably leave the body and exist somewhere else. I think that's what God is saying. But what does Dr. Dawkins say? Like most scientists, I am not a dualist. He is a monist. You are what you eat, nothing more. You are just chemicals. And what happens when you die? 
and those chemicals cease to be organized into you, you don't exist. That is what evolution says. It's not what God says. God says you have chemicals, but you are more than that. Well, we've got to get back to our main question. Why did God create marriage? Did he have a purpose, a goal? Why was it the very first thing on his mind after creation? What was he doing? Well, I think Adam sums it up for us very well here. When it says, therefore, here's the reason for this marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And I think the key there is they become one. Marriage is two becoming one. Oh, well, that makes the next question is being one important to God. Is that an important concept to be one? And if you're asked a Jewish person, what's the most important verse in the Bible? Of course, they're looking at the Old Testament. What's the most important verse in the Old Testament? They would obviously say, almost all of them would say Deuteronomy 6, 4. And that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is being one important to God? This is the most important verse, at least many Jewish people who say so, in the Old Testament. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that, we have to look at that. So that could have two meanings. Does that mean monotheism? There's only one God. We only have one God, and that's possible, and that's what many of them would say. But you look at that, it's not, it doesn't say there's only one God. It says the Lord is one. Fascinating thing in, in Hebrew, the word God there is always plural. The Lord our God's. The Lord is one. Even Genesis 1, in the beginning, God's, plural, he created. If you look at the original Hebrew, God's, plural, he created. There's a plural and a singular there side by side. That doesn't make good grammatical sense. But something in every verse of the Bible, God is saying, you know, there's something about God that is multiple. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And yet they are completely unified into one. And that is throughout the Old Testament. It's kind of hidden. But there's plurality. Here's, I think, this is what God is saying. The Lord is one. He's been one from eternity. Three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, but they're so unified that they are one. Is that important concept to God? I think so. And by the way, just so you know that this is also important that Jesus mentioned this verse because he talks about the next one. And the next verse is what Jesus says, here's the greatest commandment, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. Well, what does it mean to be One. What in the world is that talking about? This verse, when I first saw it, really struck me. Do you know that God the Father and God the Son do not have identical wills? They're separate persons, and each person has his own will. How do I know that? Well, if we look in Luke 22, I think this is the verse that explains it best. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying there. In agony, he's sweating drops of blood, and here's what he says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What was Jesus' will here? If he had had his choice, remove this cup from me. If you're willing, this would be a good thing. I, this is not going to be a fun thing to go through your wrath, God, and take the wrath of sin. If you're willing, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, 
but yours be done. When they left there, did they have one will? Absolutely. They were one God. Total agreement. And now you have to start to think, well, what if they hadn't been in total agreement? What if the opposite was true? What if instead of God being one, what if he wasn't completely unified as one? So what would heaven be like if we had everything the same, three persons that were eternal and omnipotent, never could die, full of power, and they had different wills, but they decided they were not going to be one? What would that heaven be like? Can you imagine? They were not unified as one? Well, that is, I don't think we have to imagine it because that is exactly what Greek mythology, Roman mythology, Norse mythology is like. They had multiple persons there and their own wills and they were eternal and powerful, but were they one? And what happened in those things? It was war. Continual war. In fact, that actually becomes, I think, closer to hell than heaven. What if God was not one and they each had great power. Well, this is getting hypothetical here because we really don't know, but it's like, oh, it's a good thing they're one. That is really an important thing. And just being hypothetical, what would heaven be like if we were all there and we weren't one? So there's two of you out there and one of you loves pink peonies and the other loves orange roses. And so in heaven, one plants these pink peonies right beside their lawn there and there's beautiful bush of pink peonies. And the other one on the edge of their lawn, which is right next to Pink Peony's plants, these orange roses. And, but, you know, the pink and the orange don't quite look good together. And so, first of all, these orange roses kind of overgrow the Pink Peony's. And so the person who loves Pink Peony says, oh, this doesn't look good and kind of trims down the roses. And so they're kind of down here. And then the person notices beautiful roses are missing and this pink is kind of clashing with what's left and cuts off with this. And, you know, if we were not one, what would heaven be like? Ooh, it could get pretty nasty pretty fast. And especially if we're eternal, day after day after day after. Well, these are hypothetical. But by the way, being one is very important for humans too. So how do we learn? We must learn to love one another. And there's so many one another's in Scripture. Love one another. Forgive one another. Well, if we jump, creation led to marriage. Marriage was the first thing on God's mind. But let's jump ahead. What was on God's mind as Jesus was headed towards the cross? Here's another key point. Here he is. He's headed for the cross, and he says, okay, what, what would Jesus pray for? What's on his mind? What's the most important thing on his mind as he's headed towards the cross? Well, John 17 tells us about that, and I want you to Read out loud. When we come to a fully capitalized word, I'd like you to read those out loud with me. And here he's praying. The first line says, I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is this that's going to believe in Jesus through the word of the disciples? Raise your hand if that's one of you. That's, that's us. That's us. So Jesus is praying for us. Here's what he says. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in 
us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be even as we are. I in them and you in me that they may become so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Who? What was on God's mind as he headed towards the cross? Being one. So why was marriage the first thing on God's mind after creation? Well, I think it's because God wants humans to be one. Oh, what was the purpose of marriage? What did, God, what did Adam say there? Therefore, man shall leave his mother and father and join his wife, and they become one flesh. I think marriage is practice at being one. And by the way, it's being one with someone very different. When God created the male and female in the beginning, did he create them just alike? No, they're very different. Women think different than men. I do not understand how women think. (laughs) Women do not understand how men think. We are very different. That is intentional on God's part. If I put two people that think very differently together and have them learn to be one, oh, it's not learning to be one with someone just like you. It's learning to be one who thinks differently. Divorce is is rampant in our world. Separating of being one. No longer being one. And I know there are people here divorced. uh, Issues in our families that we know of that, oh Lord. But here's what God says about divorce. Where you're separating that, you refuse to be one. Here's what God says. And he says this in Malachi. And here's what he says. Have we not all one father? Notice again, this key oneness phrase. Have we not all one Father has not? One God created us. And then he says, oh, but you're having problems. Why are you having problems? You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? God, we're giving you these offerings and sacrifices. Why don't you accept them? What's going on here? And he says, the Lord answers, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Okay, what's this godly offspring? Is that, did he want you to have godly children? Well, yes. But I think it's even more than that. I think not only that you have godly children, he wants his children to be godly. That's us. He wants us to be his godly children. And what does it mean to be godly? What is God like? What is his key principle? He is one. Oh, and how do we become godly? We become one. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth for the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. So the Lord, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. So the Lord gives us a word picture. What is it like 
to divorce. It's covering your garment with violence. And I think there's a picture here that might even show that. It's like here is an example of covering your garment with violence. What, what is this? It's this suicide vest. It's a suicide bomb. It's covering your garment with violence. Will that destroy all your enemies and wreak havoc on all those people that you would like to, to cause pain to? Yes! And what will it do to you? It'll kill you. Divorce covers your garment with violence. This is what God uses as a picture of divorce. See, marriage is God's plan from the very beginning. Okay, think with me just a little bit. Let's have just a little bit of fun with this. Let's think about a typical American wedding. And I want you to answer each of these questions. And there's only, it's multiple choice. You're either going to say groom or bride. Got that? So you're going to say groom or bride. So I'm going to ask a couple questions. I want you to answer. So here's some questions. Here's the first question. Who makes all the wedding decisions? Realistically, thank you, the bride. Who does whatever they're told? The groom. Okay, we've got that. Who wears the elaborate gown? The bride. Who wears the rented tuxedo that's been worn by 50 others? The groom. Who is escorted on the flower-strewn path while everyone stands? Who walked in the side door? The groom. And realistically, realistically, who gets all the presents? The bride. And you have to ask, well, what does the groom get? The bride! The groom gets the bride! What is a wedding? A wedding is where the bride gets the honor. She is the one that's kept herself pure. She is the one that's prepared herself to manage this family, to help this man. She is the one. This is the day she gets her name. This is the day of her honor. And then the groom gets the bride. So how important is it to be one? Matthew 19 But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female very different intentionally. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriages practice are being one because it's not just in this life we need to be one. And it's not just with our spouse we need to be one. We all need to be perfectly one together. Is being one easy? No, it's not easy. That's why we need practice. It's essential. It's important. It's good. It's not easy. Is marriage supposed to be easy? No, it's not supposed to be easy. You've got someone who thinks totally different than you and to be one. That is work. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be great but not easy. So how can the husband and wife think together? How do we work on this? Well, I think Paul tells us very plainly, whenever two types of thinking are put together in marriage, there'll be conflict. So how do we deal with that? Ephesians 5.33 is probably the simplest 
instruction where Paul says, let the husband love the wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And I think Paul summarizes it because he knows the hardest thing for men really to do is love. The hardest thing for women really to do is respect. They both need to love each other. They both need to respect each other. But he summarizes it down very plainly. And so men... As logical thinkers, I want you to understand, it is logical to love your wife. Why is it logical to love your wife? Because God said, do it. God requires it. Love your wife. It's a commandment. Oh, we should do that. And by the way, it helps your wife follow faithfully. If she is loved and sees that love and knows and senses that love, then she can follow. Even when you're leading to some place that's like, oh, where is he going? And by the way, she is your helper. What did God say about the man? It is not good that the man should be alone. She's your helper. Women, a relationship grows when you respect your husband. You want to have a good relationship? It begins with respect. It pleases God. You want to please God? Respect your husband. It helps your husband lead effectively. If he doesn't know that he's respected, if you're always challenging his leadership, he can't lead effectively. And by the way, your purpose is to help, not to lead. Now, I've heard many people say, many women say, oh, I'm just the helper. The man is what's really important. I'm just the helper. And when, I, when they say that, I have to ask, really, would you rather be the one who needs help? <laughs> you have a choice. You can be the helper or be the one who needs help. That's your choice. It is, being a man, it's a humble thing. Man, we need help. That's what God said. It's not good the man should be alone. Women, it's a humble thing. Yes, you're the helper. Both of them are helping, but together, together as one, it's what God has made good. Let the husband love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. But marriage doesn't end here on earth. Marriage is God's plan for eternity. Here's what Revelation 19 says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It's her day of honor. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Marriage is God's plan from the beginning. It is his plan for eternity. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and hold fast to her. And they shall become one. Not easy, but good. And then, of course, this was God's plan even before sin in the world. But then we get to Genesis 3, and now there's sin in the world. And humans have decided... We want to experience not only good things, but we really want to experience both good and evil. 
And all of a sudden, sin comes in here. And boy, that makes this relationship even it was This relationship would have been challenging before sin. And now it's even more challenging because sin separates us from our spouse. And that's why we need to love each other. That's why we need to respect each other. And that's why we need to repent when we have sinned against our spouse. And that's why we need to forgive when our spouse has sinned against us. To hold that union together. But that is also a picture of eternity because we have one God. He's been one from all eternity. He was one. Totally, perfectly one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we have our humans that he's created. He created all these humans. But then what happened? Oh, yes, we sinned. And now we are separated from the one God. And there is no way we're going to get over that boundary by ourselves. But that's why God sent his son, Jesus. And, oh, by the way, does sin only separate us from God? Sin separates us from each other. When your brother or sister sins against you and you sin against them, and the longer we live, the more of those things, and if we are not forgiving and not repentant, you ever seen divisions come between people? Oh my, sin separates from each other. How are we going to get through this? Ah, Jesus came. What did Jesus come for? To be the atonement for our sin. Oh, look at that word, atonement, at one You see, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit wants to be one with us. But this being one is a two-way street. Just because God has said, okay, I've sent Jesus. He has been the atonement. Whosoever will may come. Does that instantly make you one with Jesus? No, because we need to respond to that and repent and believe in order to cross over. So God does not force you to be one. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to make you be one. He allows you to be one. When we repent, turn away from our sin and accept Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. And if we don't do that, and, well, yeah, it's, and then we're all perfectly one. But if we don't do that, realistically, where does that leave us? All one by ourselves, all one, all alone. And by the way, God said it's not good for man to be alone. There's the choice God gives you today. He is inviting you. The Spirit says, come. God says, come, be one. The bride says, come. And as a representative of the bride, say, come, be one. Those of you who don't know Jesus, come, be one. Because your other choice is over here and be one by yourself, alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Marriage is God's plan from the beginning. Immediately after creation, he says, I've got a plan. And I'm going to institute marriage so that people can learn to be one through difficult circumstances. See, marriage is God's plan for eternity. Church is the bride of Christ. Being one with God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for your word and that you do explain your plan and your purpose and that you have a goal and that you've called us to be one. And Lord, I pray now 
For those here who do not know you, who have not accepted Jesus Christ, who have not repented of their sins, who do not believe, and who are not alone, who are not one, who are alone. Lord, I pray your spirit would be convicting of sin and that there is righteousness and that there is judgment. And Lord, we pray that this world would see the opportunity that you have given us as humans created in your image to be one with you. And the joy that awaits. So Lord, we pray that there would be millions who would hear your call, who would understand the truth and would believe in Jesus and give you praise. Go with us now. Thank you for this day, for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.